I have one shot of pumpkin spice in my cappuccino. Oh, it's fall, y'all. <laughs> when the pumpkin spice comes out, that's how you know. Proud to be basic. <laughs> I'm totally basic. I have so many pumpkin things in my house right now. Yes, pumpkins are the best. I have this coffee um, flavor that's pumpkin spice and I use it all year round. <laughs> I love it. I'm not ashamed to admit every season is pumpkin season for me. I wonder if we did like a collage of all of our collective pumpkin decorations, what that would look like. Be like home goods vomited onto my couch. I love decorating for fall. I'm so bad about most seasons, but the fall and the holidays. Now, do you go like Halloween, the Halloween side of things, or do you go the fall side of things? I have a blend. It must be funny for my students because I try to put all the fun stuff downstairs where they wait. Other than that, all year round, there's like nothing decorating my house. But just for like these three months out of the year, there's just stuff everywhere. (laughs) There's this one house in our neighborhood that always has some kind of decorations up, whether it's Valentine's Day decorations or they'll have St. Patrick's Day. So I know I love it. It's like it's just fun. It's fun. Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists finding inspiration through authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. I was having a laugh to myself yesterday. I know to you, I sound like a broken record when I talk about ADHD, but you know, this is like this crazy journey in my life at the moment. I love to problem solve. I love like just sitting on a problem being like, okay, what are the various ways that I could solve this problem? And I think as musicians, we're all kind of like that. Now that I know that there are these certain ways that my brain works, it's like, okay, let me figure out the best possible systems and tools to help me as an individual. And learning that just because someone who doesn't have the same brain function says, oh yeah, this organizational system is going to work perfectly because it works every time. It doesn't, it doesn't always work for me. So I'm experimenting with a lot of things. I was talking about this with a friend and she was telling me that there's this, and I'm curious to know if anyone has ever experimented with this. It's called the power plan method for increasing efficiency. Mm. And basically the reason this came up is because I was doing this exploration of what happens if I just totaled every hour of the day for five days out of the week, right? So from Monday through Friday, this is how many hours there actually are to work with. Here's how many I want to be sleeping. Here's how many I want to exercise. And I started from like the stuff that I need. And then I transferred it over to transitioned into work stuff. It's just one of those like reminders that uh, there's just not enough hours in the day to do everything you want to do. That's really refreshing because I was like, I was going to say, so when's the time when you're vegging out between things that you're supposed to be doing and like watching reality TV? Totally. (laughs) For 30 minutes. (laughs) Do you account for that? You can't expect yourself. And yeah, transitions, transitioning from doing one task to another, like how, how, how long you can efficiently function productively. For me, it's about like 45 minutes. And then I need a break of like at least 15 minutes where I'm doing something else. And then there's another block of 45 minutes available. And when I don't do that, I burn out. Yes, burnout. Oh my God. Yes. 
And it's funny because don't we, t- we talk about this with practicing our instrument all the time. You can't go more than 45 minutes without taking a break. Physically, you need it. Mentally, you need it. Da, 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 da. Why should it be any different for any other kind of work we're doing? Any kind of thing that requires focus. Yeah. And I think this is true for, for many of us, probably most people. From day to day, the pressure isn't like, oh my God, I've got to make sure I get a break in here. The pressure is I have so much I have to do so many obligations on my time. And that's what takes place as the most important thing in our lives when really taking care of ourselves is the most important thing. Because if we don't, then we can't do the things we want to do out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same problem articulated in a different way. But I find it so interesting. And it's funny because I think my friend sent me this because I was talking about that. And she was referencing something in this power planning method that they call clean rest. So you actually put clean rest in the calendar and clean rest is tricky because even if you're taking a break, you have to actively tell yourself you're not going to think about anything that you have on that to do list. That's where it gets hard. Yep. You have to just gently remind yourself that's not what we're doing right now. We're taking rest from all that. It's such common sense, right? Because our brains need it. We have to get away from it in order to be our most functional. But boy, is it hard to do in real time. It sounds like what they're describing is like meditation, like mindfulness. That's what you need to be spending that time doing instead of planning and, you know, analyzing. But sitting down at the TV and just watching a mindless show, as long as in your brain, you're not like, I should be doing this or, oh my gosh, I forgot I have to do this thing too or whatever, you know, as long as you're like, no, right now I'm just watching my trash TV and it's totally fine. Like just give yourself permission. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do to organize your life. Yeah, you let me know when you figured that out because I'll just download all that information to my plan. <laughs> it's like it's just a fascinating quest and I also have been thinking about this too like I haven't necessarily been aware for most of my life about what actually did drain me. Like I know for you, I'm I'll put you on the spot here for mm-hmm. a second. I know for you like as an introvert, we hit like our 90 to 2 hour mark when we're talking meeting you start to hit your wall, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's not my personal struggle. But the thing that I have realized, and this is so true, and I really do want to know if other people that know about ADHD have it themselves have this experience. I'm really curious to know if you recognize that some of these executive sort of functioning tasks that other people can do that's just sort of like it takes less time, they're more efficient at it, and it doesn't drain them because their brain isn't having to work so hard to do it. That is the thing that I think hits me the hardest is when I really push myself and I do that for an extended period of time, it drains me immensely. And then Mm. I hit a wall where I'm like, forget it, I'm done, I'm not going to do any more of this. And it takes me a long time to recover. Yeah. It's really interesting to learn about actually what the things are in my life that I do have a threshold for, because talking is, you know, no surprise, not really one of them. (laughs) Conversing, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that would be interesting. So if you have something that just drains you every single time that you do it after, you know, for a prolonged period of time, let us know what that is. I'm really Mm -hmm. interested to hear what, what other people's Achilles heel are. Yeah. So email us at violacentric at gmail.com and we'll share some of those sometimes just like naming it right will help you identify it and that's the first step to addressing it 
Totally. As an individual who has a lot of partnerships with people, you and I included, but I also partner with other colleagues of mine for various projects and things. It's helpful for you guys to know too, that I can vocalize like this task is going to take me twice as long as it might take someone else to do. Mm -hmm. Even those things like just recognizing like, you know what, this is a real challenge for me. It's not that I can't do it. It's just that it is going to take more bandwidth. And then having the help, you know, just people want to support you. I know you have a window. And when it's hit, when it hits, then we need to stop for the day. Like, that's good. That's a good thing to know, right? (laughs) Taking care of each other. It helps me to not feel so like a liability. Like just knowing these things about yourself, feeling comfortable enough to share them with people who you're working with, really just helps a lot of like, awkward conversations or misunderstandings from happening because you're just upfront about what you know your limitations are. God, that's just such a great way to put it, like not wanting to feel like a liability. We Mm -hmm. all have something in us that's like, this is going to be a problem. I don't know if we flip the coin and just say no, but the whole goal of being transparent about your needs and your struggles, that's in order to build support in the community that exists around you, right? whether that's your friends or family or the people you work with, or it can only be a good thing. Um, But, you know, it requires vulnerability. Yeah. And that's hard. It is hard. (laughs) It is hard. Isabel Hagen is a violist, but has transitioned to doing mostly stand-up comedy after getting her degrees. So our conversation with her was just just lovely. Mm -hmm. She's very forthcoming about her experience and just what she's gone through to arrive where she is in her career path. Yeah, totally. I feel there's this feeling I can't quite articulate that I get when I hear someone talk about a really cool thing that they've done because it's just like what they wanted to do. I mean, no one could ever draw a line between being trained at Juilliard as a violist to doing stand-up comedy as a career. And yet here is this one individual human being that like that was their path. And she's she's just 100% comfortable in her own skin. And she has learned from the process. It's just like for her, it's just, it's totally natural. It's like a totally natural thing. But it's so inspiring to listen to. It gives you all the good feels. Like many of us, she struggled with performance anxiety and as a result, really examined what she was doing for her life. She was just very vulnerable. I really do think that that's like a commonality between what we do as performers of music and what someone does as stand up. An effective performance definitely connects with the audience and communicates things that are very personal to you. Stand up comedy is just like a literal execution of that same process. Yeah. It's pulling all that uncomfortable inside stuff out and sharing it with the audience. And that's why we love comics so much is because we can identify with them. Yes. And (laughs) that's definitely the experience that I have whenever I hear her do comedy, but also in this conversation that we had with her. Yeah, she's just so upfront and sharing such intimate parts of her life. Yeah. uh, One of my favorite things that we talked about was that feedback element in an audience and how... You know, she she did t- talk about her nerves and how they relate to both disciplines. But yeah, this idea that, you know, in comedy, if it's not going well, like there's no hiding from that, where <laughs> music performance, you can kind of just let me like stuck in the awkwardness of I know this isn't going well. Maybe the audience knows this isn't going well, but I'm going to keep going. You know? <laughs> I loved that. That was kind of a nice little moment. Just really lovely conversation. Yes. 
And we think you're going to love this. Please let us know what you think. Send us emails. We love to hear from you via our website or via actual email or on the socials. Direct message us. We're happy to, to talk back and forth with you there. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Isabel Hagen. Stephanie and I are so happy to welcome back the Arcrest as a sponsor for season three. We have worked with Aaron and Tigran, who are the inventors of this revolutionary shoulder rest solution for about a year now, and we are all in. We love supporting a small business like theirs that makes a product that really works and continues to evolve. That's right. And we happen to know that they are always working on new improved prototypes. But what we've always loved is that the Arcrest is simple and elegant and completely customizable. You can choose the thickness of the padding and place it virtually anywhere you want on the back of your instrument. And playing with it allows for complete freedom of movement. Not to mention that it makes your instrument resonate more fully because it doesn't dampen the sound. So if you're ready to learn more, visit thearcrest.com. And new for this season, use the code VIOLACENTRIC at checkout for 10% off your purchase with Arcrest. This season is brought to you in part by Aria Lights, the LED music stand light brand chosen by professionals. Liz and I can honestly say that we are thrilled to welcome Aria Lights as a sponsor. I don't know about you, Liz, but I've been obsessed with Aria Lights ever since they came on the scene. I saw professionals in the Opera House Orchestra using them, and when my husband bought me one for Christmas last year, I swear, I did a little happy dance when I opened the package. <laughs> These are hands down the best LED music stand lights available. Yes, and they're used by lots of pros. Organizations like the Philly Orchestra, Toronto, New York, Cleveland, LA Opera, Frozen on Broadway, and so many more. Aria Light's beautiful design not only lights four pages of music completely evenly from top to bottom, it also shields the conductor, other musicians, and the audience from that annoying blindness-inducing light bleed from poorly angled stand lights. If you know, you know. Oh, yes, I know. And there are so many features that make these the best option on the market. So just know that if you're ready to upgrade your stand light, you cannot go wrong with Aria Lights. Learn more at arialights.com or by finding the link in our episode notes. And tell them Liz and Steph at Feelocentric sent you. It's that time of year. We're back to school and we are back to gigging. Even if you're not mentally ready for the season, you can count on our season sponsor, Potter Violins, to get your equipment ready. When's the last time you rehaired your bow, Steph? Oh, I feel like it was recently, but I bet it's been over six months. So I got to get over there and get it freshened up. Oh, and I need new backup strings and an instrument adjustment. Sounds like it might be about time. Yeah. I do love to get in there for a visit to our favorite technicians as we approach the change of season. Hmm, maybe I need a new case too. <laughs> and as we've said before, if you need a rental instrument, they're the place to go. My daughter and many of my students rent from Potters and the instruments are really fantastic, even the smaller violas. Yes, get back to your music this season with confidence by visiting Potter Violins so your equipment will be ready even if you might need a bit more of a warm up. Isabel Hagen is a stand-up comedian and a classically trained violist. As a comic, she's been featured on The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, and as a new face of comedy at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal. Isabel started stand-up right after earning her bachelor's and master's degree in viola performance from the Juilliard School. She's made the rounds as a freelancer, too, playing on Broadway, touring internationally, 
and working with such artists as Bjork, Max Richter, The National, and Steve Reich. And one of her latest and arguably most high-profile gigs lately was headlining at the Festival of the American Viola Society this past June. So we're just so excited that you've agreed to join us today. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. Thank you for having me. And that was such a nice um, bio read. Thank you for that. Well, you wrote it, so most of it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Man, I love that was so well written. I mean, who did that? <laughs> yeah, you know, we're artisans of great content as classical musicians, right, Steph? You know, right. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. I, <laughs> I also just, you know, the classical musician's bio, just like an avid performer of <laughs> captivating audiences across the globe. I think that a bunch of us write something like, so-and-so is a desired or is a sought-after performer. In demand. <laughs> In demand. That's it. I think we're not comfortable bragging, but we're like, okay, well, we have to like sound like good though. So, okay. In demand. People want me. <laughs> There's demand. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's on my website right now. So Isabel, everybody probably asks you this because you've been on the Jimmy Fallon show. Is Jimmy Fallon as cool and approachable as we all think that he is? Yes, he is. I mean, at least in my brief experience with him. You know, he's probably still performing in a sense with the guests off stage, but he's like, so great, so great, so good. To see. You know, like he's like just exactly like that and like very nice. And I don't know, it was weird because the day I did The Tonight Show was March 11th 2020 which was like the day before covid like blew up in oh my gosh the u.s so before we like started taking it seriously and it was actually the last performance with a live audience for the tonight show for a while and because of covid first of all i was like really sick that day but like because i didn't have a fever or a cough at that time we were like well it's not covid and I was like really ill. Usually Jimmy Fallon like makes the rounds before to see the guests, but they're like, because of COVID, like he's not really coming around to the rooms. And I was like, totally get it. But then like after the show, I think he was like maybe trying to like sneak out, but he happened to like walk into like me and all my like managers and my family. And so we had to be like, hey, you know, like, <laughs> and I was like, hi. <laughs> and he was super nice, but I could tell like he was trying to like miss us but then he like ran into us but he was still like very very gracious and cool and all that that's great were you nervous at all i was so nervous i don't usually get like the same kind of performance anxiety for comedy as i do for viola just because like my hands can shake and it won't mess me up and all of that and i just feel more comfortable as a performer doing comedy but before i went on stage like oh my god i'm gonna forget all my jokes and like Fears that I'd never like even entertained as a comic before. And I was just like, what? You really got yourself into something this time, Isabel. What are you doing? What? Are you? And I hear them like announcing my name and they really just like push you out, you know, because they like open the curtain. And, and as soon as I got on stage, I was totally fine because there's just an audience that's laughing and it's exactly the same as any show. So I was like, OK, but like up until the moment I went on stage, I was going to like vomit. That's huge. Oh, my God. I know that's been a I've read that this is a struggle, been a struggle for you for a while. Performance anxiety as related to performing as a classical musician. And it sounds like sometimes it can be as a comedian too. take us back and our listeners back, because I think a lot of people are going to relate to this about your performance anxiety as a violist and what paths you took and where you ended up. Ever since I was little, playing little recitals, I would always notice that you know, I, I had no idea I would get nervous. And then all of a sudden before I went on, I was like, oh, I'm like shaking and I have a knot in my stomach and 
okay. And then I would play and I'd be like, that didn't go as well as in the practice room. Like, oh. And Mm -hmm. so then I started sort of like developing like nerves about getting nervous almost. Like I wasn't actually like, I'm going to mess up. I was just like, I'm going to be nervous and screw up because of the nerves themselves. But it was like, I used to like be able to manage it. And when I was younger, you know, you're just a little, you're, you're kind of dumber. You're just like, oh, it'll be fine. And as I progressed, and especially when I started doing college auditions, like I, I remember I had, my first audition was at New England Conservatory. And I was not prepared mentally at all. And I, I've never played a worse audition. And I think the people in that room have never heard a worse violist. Like I played so And I'm not trying to like tear myself down. Like I was not functional. Like I just played like absolute garbage. And I told my friend about it and she was like, you should just take beta blockers. Like that's what I do. They just slow down your heart rate. They stop your bow from shaking. Try it. And so I got a prescription for those and it was like life change. I mean, I just, it was like what I needed kind of. And I would Mm -hmm. just take like a half of one and I was just like, oh, I'm just not shaking. And I still played badly sometimes you know like just because we all mess up we're all human but it wasn't due to nerves but it was still just like this battle like ongoing and I would try to like not take them sometimes and then take them sometimes I tried to study like the slick sports mentality and inner game of tennis and all that and it was just so like hit or miss I just never really knew even with a beta blocker if I was going to play like well or not or if the anxiety was going to overtake me It was just so frustrating when you're like working on this one skill and when you actually have to perform it, it just like doesn't go well in like a really profound way. It's like your whole identity, at least for me, was shattered. And I'm just like, what am I even doing? I felt like such a complete and total failure. And I also dealt with like injuries on top of it. And I I just felt like a mess, you know, (laughs) and and there wasn't like that much, at least for my undergrad, there wasn't like that much support for that kind of thing there was like alexander technique and there was like one performance skills class but it wasn't required and like you really had to seek it out yourself so i wasn't feeling like supported in that way and i don't think it's to like the fault of it it was just like not built into the thing and i think people try to hide parts of themselves but it's funny because i talk about it so much now because I go on podcasts and they, and so many musicians reach out to me just saying like, oh my God, like, thank you for talking about that. Me too. And I think it's just like a lot more common. Yeah, for sure. I think addressing physical discomfort in music was something that happened maybe when we were coming of age in the music world. But before that, it was like pain was just part of the job and you had to deal with it. And now we're able to recognize, oh, no, like injuries can happen. And here's how we try to prevent them and stuff. And I think that the mental aspect and the psychological aspects, I think we're going to start to see that become more present. I think it's really interesting, too. We were reading this interview that you had done and, and you mentioned fight or flight. And I'm just bringing this up because I've been really fascinated lately in the work that some people in our field are doing related to trauma and performance, and how this hit or miss feeling we're all familiar with. One of the reasons that that might be is that it's stored in the body from these cumulative years of putting ourselves through this thing that actually our brains don't know the difference between something truly dangerous and getting up on a stage and performing, right? So we're having these like instinctive responses. That's really interesting. And I, it's funny, I actually never really thought about how it gets stored. I probably, you know, we had like some early, really bad performance experiences. And then like every time we play, we're like, well, don't let that happen. But then it doubles down and you're, yeah, you're anxious about getting anxious. And Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's really, it's really tough. And then there's this mentality of like, well, if you can't do it, I guess maybe you're just not cut out for it. And like, sometimes that's, tr- I mean, that should be like a decision you make on your own. And I actually kind of made that decision in a way by switching to comedy. But but that was really like also a, a strong desire to do comedy. Like as miserable as I was just playing viola, like I wanted to be a comedian so badly. So like, I think there's like a balance. Well, I think we're all realizing too that a career in music doesn't mean taking auditions. Right. It can mean a lot of different things, especially these days. There's so many paths. You were able to almost like fuse the two because your comedy act involves viola sometimes. So what a lovely way to like piece together two things, one that meant so much for you in your formative years and now something that means so much to you now as a comedian. You have to look up some videos if you're not familiar with Isabel because, I mean, you're a great player, but you're a great comedian too. And I wonder too, like just to tie it into this idea, and you've talked about this too, that doing comedy maybe actually has helped you. They say with trauma that the only way actually to recover from it is to go through it and to heal it. So if just like taking auditions and playing solo viola, it's like there's so much that's tied up in it. You found this thing that you're doing and you're still putting yourself through a really like big deal situation where you can get some performance anxiety, but it's something that has worked for you, it seems like, and clearly because you're just so funny. So great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, please, more. No. Um... <laughs> Yeah, you do have to kind of own the trauma in a way, like by putting yourself through it again. I think um, for me, doing stand-up was a way to sort of own my performance a little more because part of it's easier because you get an immediate reaction from the crowd if it goes well. One time I was playing a concert and I was in a string quartet and my bow was shaking and it was so bad. And then there was like this sort of senile old man in the audience and all of a sudden he was like, I gotta get out of here. And he like stormed up and it you know, it was a little alarming, but also like people were kind of laughing and it was like, whoa, that just happened. And all of a sudden I was completely at ease. We were all re- present in the room together. The, the wall had been broken and comedy kind of naturally does that. Sometimes it doesn't if they're not laughing, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> in comedy, I can like mess up and then be like, well, I just screwed that up. And then everyone laughs and then we're back in it. And it's <laughs> yes. so it's this much more interactive process that I think lends itself to if you have performance anxiety, maybe it's like a little better of an art form in that way. Not better, but like more suited. But it is still like a very nerve wracking experience. And I do feel like I was sort of putting myself through the trauma again, like on my own terms. Yes by building up this new skill too. And then now I get way less nervous playing viola also just because of the number of performances because with comedy, if you want to get good, you have to perform pretty much every night. Wow. With music, you play like maybe, especially when you're at school, maybe like once a month you have a performance. So it's like all this pressure riding on this one moment. Whereas now it's like, I perform sometimes two, three times a night. Like this is not, if this doesn't go well, tomorrow will go well. Like it doesn't really matter, you know? Yeah. Wouldn't it be lovely if we all had that idea about music as well? Like, it's a process. I know. And I'm going to perform for you today, but it's going to be different tomorrow. It's going to be better. It might be worse. Mm-hmm. It's like, these are snapshots. These performances are snapshots, not endpoints. Yeah. There's something so freeing about the idea that's like, let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. This isn't going well. Yeah. yeah. And it's so <laughs> cathartic doing that. <laughs> Only we could do that in a concert. <laughs> I wish you could do like, and what if you could stop playing and just be like, look, I'm having a rough night. This isn't going well. Can I just like start again? Yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever played like in a, you know, not very professional orchestra. And there's this piece that you're just not quite sure if it's going to start together. 
and then it doesn't like in performance and the conductor <laughs> you have to stop and the conductor just stops every stop and turns around to the audience and is like we're gonna try that one again i've been there before <laughs> and <laughs> it's endearing right oh yeah yeah the AVS festival when you performed for us was so much fun. Thanks. If you noticed that there were two girls in particular who were just cackling away off to the right side of you, it was the two of us. Thank you. It was us. <laughs> we were your like your biggest stands. <laughs> we were. We were. We love we were. You. <laughs> Thank you so much for laughing. You probably were the catalyst that got everyone else. Like, you always need someone to, to laugh right away to be like, okay, it's okay to laugh. All right. <laughs> Yeah, there are some points in your routine that are a little spicy, shall we say? Spicy is a good word. We think it's hilarious. But we were looking around at the audience yeah. and there's always like one or two people like with their arms crossed like, this is not funny. I'm not amused. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wonder if you clock that as a performer. Your eye get drawn to that or what? I do. I've trained myself to like not look at them because so much of making comedy work, you have to just like believe in what you're doing. And the audience, even if they don't realize it, they can, t there's like an animalistic element to comedy. Like even if I don't actually mess any words up or anything, if I'm a little nervous, the audience picks up on that. And usually that's like, I'm not going to go as well. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm a little, not nervous, like it's not the adrenaline. It's like, if I don't believe in what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So if I see someone like this and I like focus on them, it can like kind of throw me. So usually I'm like, okay, who's laughing? And I like play to them. Mm -hmm. um, so I probably played to you a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs> but I was really, really nervous for that performance in particular, just because I told them going in, I was like, look, I'm kind of done censoring myself. I'm happy to come, but like, I only want to do it if I can just do my act. And they were like, yes, please. And I was like, okay. And <laughs> And I even like had them write a little disclaimer and I even at the beginning mentioned like, you know, there was a disclaimer, so let's all be cool now, you know. Um, <laughs> I was very appreciative of the people who were laughing because of that because I knew some people there were not used to like blue humor. I feel like a lot of people were laughing and I, uh, yes, we were watching the audience the whole time. And I have to say that even the older crowd, they were really starting to embrace it towards the middle once they realized what they were in for. <laughs> Right, right. And I try to remember this a lot. I think about this with the boomer generation just because these are my parents. And I'm realizing as I approach whatever we would consider to be middle age, I still feel like the me that I was in a lot of ways, like 15 years ago, whatever. And so do they. I saw it in their faces. Like they were like, yes, I'm embracing this now. Like it was really, it was so funny. Yeah. That's such a, and that's true. Like everyone has these has thoughts you know and has like <laughs> had experiences and i wonder what it is like i'm really non-threatening i'm just trying to have like a really good goofy time up there yeah stephanie and i talked about this like the timing of your jokes and then deadpan like picking up the viola and playing bach is it is hysterical it's so unique too thank you <laughs> Yeah, how did that come about? Because there's some really, really vulnerable things that you talk about, and then you just go to playing the viola. Yeah, for about four years when I started comedy, I didn't do any music integration because I, I didn't know if I even wanted to play viola anymore eventually, and I just wanted to be a comedian. I wanted to know I could do it without any music. I just was, you know, writing all these jokes and then playing viola gigs, and people would always say, oh, do you ever, like, combine them? And I would just think like, that sounds so hacky. I don't know how I would do that, you know. But I like kind of knew I wanted to in some way. And all of a sudden I was like, well, what if I just 
literally did a joke and then played viola like wouldn't that juxtaposition be kind of weird and so I just like went to an open mic and brought my viola on stage and just did that with like my shorter jokes and I felt this like oh that's that's something so I've and then I was like developing that and that's how it came about out of like not wanting to combine them I was like well what if I like starkly put them next to each other it's so good it really gives a different flavor to your Bach too right (laughs) you're putting it in that situation because Bach was like, these are pop songs of his day. These were drinking songs. These were, you know, all music was written in a context. And putting it next to a joke, what a cool way to flavor it. Butcher it. Never. No, that's a good point that they were like the pop songs of the day. I never really thought of it quite like that. Let's hear this in a different context. I have to tell you, playing Bach after telling a joke is the freest playing I ever do. I was going to say... There were two things, Stephanie mentioned this, the vulnerability of some of the things you share. It's actually was very raw. Like sometimes there's laughter, but sometimes there's almost like this, man, I would feel it like in my body and almost, almost like to the point of feeling a tear form in my eye because it's so genuine. And I think that's also incredibly brave to make the decision to be very vulnerable, sharing certain things about yourself with your audience and you strike this balance of like giving us those moments that kind of break your heart almost and then make you laugh really hard. Yeah, I'm glad it comes across as brave. It just feels really good to talk about that to an audience. And um, it just like helps me kind of process it more too. And, and making the show was therapeutic in itself and kind of revisiting this time when I was really lost. And then finding out that other, cause I, when I have done the show in New York, you, at least a few musicians will be in the audience every time and, and come up to me and just say that they felt the sa- feel the same things and they're really happy I'm talking about it. And that makes me feel so good. Like obviously laughter is therapeutic and I want to make people laugh, but I also, um, I like making people feel like calm and like a sense of okayness because that's something I really value in performances as someone who's like so much of the time like anxious and a mess and distraught. And it's just like this ability to like feel okay for a minute because of a performance with a bunch of people. That's really um, important to me. Um, So I'm really glad that that (laughs) that had that effect. It does. And then the other thing that I think Stephanie and I both were like, oh, yes, is that I would say there's some feminist material in there. It's a fair amount of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like you're saying a lot of things for women that should be said and you just make us feel seen. It's it's funny because I never um, set out to be like a feminist comic or anything, but but you always joke about like what's close to you those things just sort of came out and also i like to i i hope that also like poking fun at certain like feminist tropes but also you know like we can all laugh at ourselves too maybe it'll be educational for men as well (laughs) yeah is there ever anything that you think up and you're like "Mm," you have like second thoughts about putting that in your act or are you just pretty much just anything goes I do have second thoughts a lot of the time. It's never because I want to censor myself. I'm never like, oh, I could never say that. You know, I'm kind of an open book. But I want the most people possible to laugh. I don't want to just play to like one group as much as I... I mean, of course, if women relate to a lot of my jokes more than men, fine. I'm a woman. What are you going to do? But I try to like think, okay, well, is this something that a lot of people like want to hear about? Is this a slightly problematic take, actually? Like, you know, a lot of times I have to check myself. 
Yeah. Because I'll think of something and I'm like, yeah, that's funny, but it's like a little, it's not the message I really want to be sending. So there's a lot of like checking myself in that way. It's an ongoing process. But sure, I totally say like, oh, no, I can't say that (laughs) all the time. (laughs) It feels more like what you're doing is examining if it feels authentic to you. Yeah, for sure. And when you start out, because I'm still relatively new as a comedian, you know, they say it takes like 10 years to be like good. And I'm about seven years in, I don't know, or to find your voice. So little of it has to do with the actual material and so much has to do with the delivery style and like the point of view and finding out what you, what I actually think about certain things. And early on, I would just make jokes that seemed funny, but it wasn't necessarily my point of view even. It was just like an idea that was like, well, this is funny that this is this way. And I would sort of pretend that it was my view. And so now I'm really trying to like take a step back and like talk about things that I've gone through and actually see where the where the humor is in that. And it's so much more rewarding. I'm not saying I'm like doing this fully at any, I'm just, this is my ongoing pursuit, but to just be really, yeah, authentic. It sounds so cliche, but true to yourself, but that's like the best. To me, that's the best comedy when it's like, this is totally what they actually are like thinking and feeling and they're letting us in and crafting it into these like great jokes. It's relatable for people who are listening. Yeah, they want to know you. They don't want to know like what a great joke writer you are. Right. And there are some there are some comedians out there who are like just such brilliant joke writers. And that's like a skill in itself. And there there's all different types of comedy. But yeah, I think a lot of people, myself included, really appreciate that style where it is just letting the audience in. And, and then when it's something you relate to, you're just like, holy crap, like I, I never thought of it like that. But I totally think that too, you know? <laughs> So after you got both your master's and your bachelor's, you decided to go off on this other path. And so you kind of went from freelance career to freelance career. So what's that been like? Do you have the same experiences of, you know, like we're all told as musicians when we're starting out and we don't believe this always, but say yes to everything, take every gig. What's it like in the comedy world? Do you feel the same kind of pressure to just be out there performing, whether the gig is good or not? Totally, especially with comedy, because there's a lot of value in saying no in terms of trying to figure out what you want to focus on. Like I say no to a lot of other things, but anything that's me telling jokes in front of an audience, at least up until now or about a year ago, I would just say yes to everything. Because even really horrible shows thickens your skin as a comic because you have to get used to bombing and like to get that kind of ease on stage. It comes from doing like thousands of horrible shows. Sets where you're either talking to silence, people are chatting with each other, you know, or people are not your audience and they're not laughing. Just all sorts of nightmare situations. I would say, especially like your first, like at least five years doing comedy, like say yes to anything that involves you talking into a microphone. As as you develop, then you want to start steering yourself a little more, but it's, it's a delicate thing. <laughs> What came to mind when you were talking about this, Isabel, was Mrs. Maisel, because it's like my only insight into the world of what it would be like to try to get your foot in the door. The relationships you have to have with the people who make the decisions on who's on stage and all of that stuff. Do you have management? I mean, do you do this on your own? How does this work? 
I got, yeah, I did it on my own and I still do a lot of, like I do my little like New York spot bookings on my own, you know, but I, I had a manager see me like four years in. And so now he'll book me on the road, you know, for like real paying gigs. Cause in, when I'm doing spots around the city, that's really just for me to like practice and try new stuff. There's all different ways to do it. You can book yourself. I know a lot of comedians who are very successful on the road and they book themselves. So there are all different ways to do it. But, you know, sometimes a manager can have certain relationships with other bookers that you don't have. So much of it is who you know. I hate that this is like a realization I'm coming to. So if you have someone in your corner who knows more people, it's not like Maisel. I don't have a... You don't have a Susie in your life? <laughs> well, <laughs> my manager's got a bit of a Susie, but I love him. But uh, <laughs> um, one thing I will say, that back to the like taking every gig, it, it is different from music in the sense that when you're freelancing as a musician, like you're already like very good at your skill. But with comedy, like you're taking everything in the first five years just to get better. So it's actually how you practice. It's a different thing in a way. I just think, I just want to make the point that I think in music, you know, it's, it's okay to like say no to things that you know are going to make you miserable and value yourself and value your skill, <laughs> whatever you can to keep yourself sane. Yeah, that sanity thing that, that erodes over time in these careers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a lot to have to start from the bottom again. Is that kind of the way that you felt when you entered comedy? Yeah, I, I never thought of it from the bottom just because I was so excited to be doing it. But being a beginner again at something is like the best thing you can do to regain confidence in your other craft and in the process because you get, and I feel like I talk about this a lot but I just feel it so strongly that when you're like really advanced at one skill like you're not going to be able to notice your improvements as tangibly because you just will increments every but when you're really bad at something as you're getting better at it or less less terrible it's like really noticeable you're like whoa I like don't suck anymore that's crazy <laughs> and you're like oh right working on something makes me better <laughs> like no matter what I will get better and because I had reached this point in viola where I was just like, this is as good as I'll ever be. I suck. I'm hopeless. And then after doing comedy for a while and regaining that like joy in the process, I was like, oh, I can like practice viola. And like, yeah, maybe it won't be better tomorrow. But in a month, if I do this every day, it will be better. No doubt about it. Just made me like love practicing again <laughs> in a weird way. That's awesome. That's really great. I wonder, too, if it's like, Stephanie and I talk about this as well, this idea that when you find something that you love to do it and you have so much joy in doing it, it doesn't really matter if it's not related to playing viola, but like there's a freedom that opens up within you. And then, yeah, you're able to see these things more positively and maybe get rid of some of the all those connotations that we have from our upbringings in classical music, a different perspective, and then it makes it more joyful. Yeah, you almost have to take yourself out of the situation because it's very insular what we do as classical musicians. And we're in this world where everybody's on this treadmill and everybody's, you know, going for these gigs and they're practicing and blah, blah, blah. You step off the treadmill, remove yourself from the situation, and you can really kind of see really a whole and amazingly talented person just full stop. Just seeing yourself in a different way is so valuable sometimes, just kind of put your back on reality right yeah and also I feel like if you're a straight up classical musician like go to like a music open mic and just like play a movement of Bach because I mean not to say everyone will be like oh my god you're amazing like who knows but you'll probably notice that people are like whoa and even if you think you didn't play that well 
you realize like how special what you do is, even at maybe not what you at the level you would like it to be, whatever we've put our, you know, goals we've set in our minds, these like unattainable levels of perfection. But taking my viola out at comedy clubs, like a, a byproduct of that has also just been like people being so in awe of it. It's it's not like I'm like, okay, well, I can just play bad and they'll still be impressed. It's not that feeling, but it's just, it connects me to them a little more and takes away my like being like stuck up about it. It's just like, I know that like I'm giving them, I'm, I'm giving and it's being appreciated. So it kind of takes away that anxiety a little bit. Mm-hmm. It makes it less about you, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not about you. It's about the, the music and what you're doing. Yeah, that connection piece that we talked about earlier, too, that came up. And all you have to do as a musician, really, is go into, I I think, Stephanie, I told you about this, but I had this opportunity to sub for a friend who goes in every week. She goes into an assisted living facility and she visits different rooms for different people every week and plays 10 minutes, 15 minutes of music for them. And she's just playing classic Sinatra tunes or maybe some Bach or if the person is verbal they'll give requests if they're not then she just plays what she thinks they'd like to hear and they'll react and you can tell that all you're doing is just making their day better it's it's finding places like that to do it so for any of our freelance friends listening that are like well, I could never get up on stage and do stand-up. It's not so much about that. It's about finding those ways to feel the joy about the fact that no one in that audience is listening for you to be perfect with every single note you play, right? That's not the point. <laughs> the point is to, no. to use it to connect. And it does take some pressure off. There's something very freeing about that. Stand-up is like, in a way, a miserable profession <laughs> because you're ne- you never really know what you're going to get with the audiences. Like, there's so much rejection involved, so much soul-sucking sort of situations that come with it. But, like, I love it. I will never stop doing it. Like, it's my favorite thing in the world in spite of that. So it's really about, like, finding the thing that makes you really excited in your body. Everything comes with suffering. But if you're lucky, you get to choose your suffering. (laughs) Not to be like dark in that. It's very real, though. Life is pain. But life is so much more than pain. It's so much more than pain. There's no, you can't avoid pain. And if you try to avoid pain, there's pain that comes from that. Yep. I hope I'm not like um, depressing anybody. (laughs) Wow, this has taken a turn. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You can cut this part out. (laughs) Title of the episode, There's Pain from Escaping Pain. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's the balance of life. You can't have joyful laughter without experiencing some kind of pain, right? Because it's all part of the spectrum in the grand scheme of things. And we experience plenty of it in our lives. I was just talking to somebody the other day. It's going to be one of the most poignant historical events in history, the COVID pandemic. Like, we've all just gone through this collective trauma together. That's massive. Like, that's a a massive thing. And And now everyone is trying to navigate their way out of it and all the positives and all the tragedies from it. Like, it's a crazy thing. Such a crazy thing. Yeah. And we're so close to it. It's really hard to sense the vast like impact it's had just like culturally and societally. If we're lucky enough to look back in like 50 years and be like, whoa, like we all went through that. <laughs> yeah, like there are going to be children that are like, what was that like? Yeah, like we all have like our vaccination cards. It'll be like this like... <laughs> Saved in the 
archives. <laughs> yeah, like it'll be this ratty like thing. Like, oh, I found my great grandmother's vaccination card from the COVID nineteen <laughs> pandemic. I just had this experience. Actually, it was just September eleventh, and my kids obviously were not alive during that time. And we sat down at the dinner table after dinner, and we we're just like, "Do you know what today is?" And and we told some stories about what happened on that day. And our kids were just like completely awed and shocked and horrified, obviously. But we are going to have that perspective to be able to share this time with other people and be those firsthand experiences that will help it to live on. It just goes to show you that while you're here, you just have to do what you love. You have to craft whatever that is for you. Craft your love. Yeah, and don't be afraid to like go searching for it because... I don't think it's the default in our society to reject what doesn't fulfill us and to seek out what does. I think it's the default to like seek stability. Nothing is really stable. And also stability is like kind of boring. I don't know. That's a very privileged thing to say, obviously. Mm, yeah. And I mean that in a very uh, narrow sense of it. But it's okay to like actively seek out something that makes you want to get out of bed every morning. That will in turn inspire other people to do the same and you'll be more fun to be around and it'll have a positive impact beyond you to seek out joy and like excitement. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, that's so great. <laughs> well, this whole conversation has been amazing. Yes, thank you for being here, Isabel. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I'm honored to do it. We'll hopefully be seeing you headlining somewhere in D.C. in the near future. I really want to come to D.C. I weirdly like haven't had a gig there for so long, so I will hopefully be there soon. Let's get you down here. we got to figure something out. Yes. Yeah, you have fans. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season sponsors, Arc Rest, Potter Violins, and Aria Lights. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs, and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Club. If you loved today's episode, consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want the chance to hang with us and have access to behind-the-scenes audio and video recordings, check out our new Patreon. Our episodes are edited by Alex Kuchowski. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.